Let's turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. Uh, we're going to read the whole chapter tonight. Uh, that's on page 917 and 18 of your church Bibles. It's also in your service sheets. So Ephesians 2, uh, beginning in verse 1. And this is, this is God's word. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passion of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. In him... Sorry, in him we have obtained an inheritance having been that doesn't look quite Yeah, sorry, I think the back is is old. So forgive me. Do I miss one? Yeah, okay. I think that was the end of the reading. <laughs> I've, I've been thrown off by our service sheet here. Okay. Yeah, sorry. 
I think we had a little bit of a misprint in our service sheets, which I was what I was reading rather than out of the Bibles. Let that be a lesson to you, nascent preachers. Anyway, the grass withers, the flower fades. <laughs> the word of our God stands forevermore, even when I muddle it up. So, <laughs> uh, and we've probably all heard perhaps someone uh, claiming to have had an out-of-body experience uh, where someone says that they, they felt like they were they were looking at themselves or, or looking at the world from, from outside of themselves. Some, some branches of, of spirituality actually encourage this. They believe it gives them a, a particular insight into who they are and why they act the way that they do. Ephesians 2 is actually uh, as close as a Christian can get to an out-of-body experience. Paul's inviting us to, to look at ourselves and our lives from, from the perspective of God. And what he lays out for us is, in fact, uh, our personal testimony, if we're in Christ Jesus. It's something that, that each and every one of us has actually experienced. Even if, even if our, our story is, is a little bit different, we're all part of this, this one story. That's what, that's what Paul's telling us. He tells us that if we're in Christ, then what has happened to us is like being taken from, from death to life. If we're in Christ, then, then what's, what's happened to Christ in his death and resurrection is, a, is applied to us. If Christ has died, we've died with him. If he's risen, then we will rise with him. He says if you're in Christ, then you actually belong to, to a family in the here and now. Uh, a, a people, and it's, it's a complicated family. It's a, often a, a messy family, isn't it? It's the church of Christ Jesus. And those are really the three things for us to see this evening. That, that one, who we were before Christ. Two, who we are in Christ. And three, the, the people that Christ calls us to. So I mentioned this, this last week. I'll repeat it again for us uh, this evening because of our, our Brentford friends being with us. But we're going through large chunks of Ephesians. You probably noticed that. Uh, and, and as we, we go through these large chunks, there's going to be loads of things that, that I miss out on. Uh, so, sometimes that's on purpose. Sometimes that's just because I just missed it. But as we get a kind of a broad overview, it's really good. And I'd encourage you to, to go back during the week and read through this passage again. Uh, maybe not from the service sheet, but, but the one that's actually in your Bible. Uh, and, and read through it again, verse by verse, and, and meditate on and consider the details and, and the implications for us as God's people. But let's first look tonight at, at who, we, who we were before Christ. Uh, I call this an out-of-body experience, but actually it's, it would probably be more accurate to say that this first bit is, is probably more like the ghost of Christmas future experience from a Christmas carol. If you're not a, a believer in Christ, then, then Paul wants to get your attention. He wants you to see the, the trajectory of your life. And if, if you're in Christ, then he, then, then he wants you, to, he, he wants you to, to, to see the, the precious nature of, of your salvation. He wants you to understand where you've been and what you've been saved from. If, you're, if you remember your Dickens, Ebenezer Scrooge was, uh, of course, already dead, and he didn't know it. He, his, his life was on a particular trajectory. He was visited by three ghosts the last of which was the ghost of Christmas future. And this ghost took him forward to, to a Christmas where, where he wasn't present. He was, he was already dead. And he, he, he's not missed. He was, he was a miser. People didn't like him. And so he's standing over his grave, and he's, he's broken by that because he, he sees what a waste his life was. 
He'd been greedy and selfish and cruel. He hadn't known real love. And even though he, he died rich, what was, what was the point? And seeing, this, seeing his, his own grave, coming to terms with his own death, knowing what he was destined for, actually caused Scrooge to wake up. And Paul has just, just been praying in, in the, the last chapter of Ephesians, what we looked at last week, that the church would know the depth of the grace of God in the work of Christ Jesus. And here he, he shifts quite abruptly to what this, this rather dramatic statement of our state outside of Christ, doesn't he? He says, you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked. I think Paul actually has, has quite a flair for this, doesn't he? He's, he's on the one hand praying that we would know the depth of God's grace. And so what does he do? He, he hits us with a, with a board, with a two-by-four over the head immediately. It's quite abrupt. You are dead in your trespasses and sins. Let's think about this for a moment. Because I don't think we always quite get what Paul means by this. We think, we think Paul's using a bit of hyperbole, isn't he? He's overstating things to make his point. You know, I, we want to think we're, we're intelligent people, and we are. We want to think that we're, we're good people. And next to, say, Hitler, we are. I mean, that's, it's a low standard, but we've got we to gotta have something to compare to, don't we? We think we're, we're good enough. And we're moral enough and we're intelligent enough to, to, to choose to follow God. We know a good thing when we see it. That's why my parents bought Encyclopedia Britannica from a guy that knocked on our door. They knew a good thing when they saw it, right? Most of you, like the kids are like, what's Encyclopedia Britannica? I, I'm, I'm stretching here. But Paul says none of, none of our goodness, none of our intelligence, none of that matters. Because our, our natural state was dead in our sins. So then we start trying to think, well, well, aren't there, aren't there levels of dead? You know, this, this is where our intelligence actually gets exposed, you know. When Paul says dead, doesn't he mean just, just kind of mostly dead? You know, maybe like someone, if, if they're, they're on their deathbed, but, but a doctor puts some medicine to their lips and they, they choose to drink it and be made well. Isn't that kind of what, what Paul's saying? Uh, no, that's not what he's saying. See, for Paul dead means means dead and we want to have you see we, we want to have something to do with our salvation don't we and Paul says we don't have anything to do with it we're dead in our sins oh but wait a second here we go here's, here's the intelligent bit right the New Testament was written in Greek and we hear ministers all the time talk about what a word actually means in Greek are you really sure Rob that the word in Greek actually means dead um, for the sake of argument I did look this one up, and guess what the Greek word for dead means? It means dead, like literally a corpse. In other words, in our natural sinful state, we're not just dead, we're, we're cold, we're starting to smell. If you look closely, there's some flies kind of buzzing around a bit. The implications of, what, what, uh, of that actually explains a lot of our world, doesn't it? We're dead in our trespasses and sins. Have you ever wondered why when you've talked to people about your faith, why something that seems so obvious to you just, just doesn't seem to connect with them? And you think, if only I explained it better. If only I had a better answer to, to that question that they asked, then, then they would have believed. Well, not necessarily. Paul says they're, they're dead in their sins. 
They're following a, a different king. Did you notice that? They're, they're, they're following the, 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 the prince of this world. They're dead in their sins. This explains everything about our world. You know, when we moan about, about the state of the world and, and the, the injustices and the terrible things around us, you know, why does God allow it to happen? Well, well, God's just allowing you to be you. That's what we want, isn't it? I just want to be me. I just want to let my best me shine. Scripture says that if you, if you look around, when you, when you shine without Christ, then we're, we're kind of like an episode of The Walking Dead. At least I think we are. I've not actually seen it, but you know, you get the point, right? A zombie show? Yeah. But, there, but there's a but, isn't there? And we see it in our second point this evening, who we are in Christ. There's a but. It's a big but. Yes, I went there. It was cheap, I know. That's the kind of week I've had. Uh, I like big conjunctions, and I cannot lie, or prepositions, whatever the but is grammatically here. I'm not an English professor. I'm American. Uh, what does Paul say? You were dead, but God, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead and our trespasses made us alive together with Christ. It's by grace you have been saved. And I want to suggest to us that this is one of the most profound statements not just in all of scripture but I think that's ever been written into our world I'm going to give us three reasons why first what is what it says about the heart of God did you notice what what it says about the heart of God you why, why would God take a bunch of smelly rotting corpses people who've been stubbornly rebellious against him and send his son to die for them Paul says it's it's because in in the heart of God there's a deep love an immeasurable love an incomprehensible love and that love of God has been directed towards you his people those that he's chosen and that's not only incredibly profound but it's actually an, an incredibly beautiful thing isn't it when you were a sinner in rebellion against God when you were condemned and dead when there was nothing in you worth loving, God loved you anyway. There's a wonderful stubbornness to his love, isn't there? There's a stubbornness to the love of God for you, and it's stronger than the stubbornness of your sinful heart. And we've got to let that truth sink into us, don't we? That all the, the depth of the sin, all the things that we do, all the things that we break, there's... there that, that even in the stubbornness of our sin, the love of God for us is more stubborn than ours, than our stubbornness. How much must God love you to save you? Well, you know, my, my, my wife loves me deeply, and I know that she does. Because she, she loves me enough to, to live with me even when, even when I'm, I'm not very easy to live with. But my wife's love can't make me righteous. God's love for me is even deeper. And that's because he, he loves me enough not just to stick with me when I'm a pain. Not just to, to stand by me on my worst days. But because he can actually take those, those days where I just reek of death. And he can bring life to me. To make me actually righteous before him. That's, that's the uniqueness of his love for us. 
My wife can stand by me in my sin. But only Jesus can make me righteous. And see, our, our world tries to, to neuter this love all the time. Have you ever noticed that? You've heard people quote at you, uh, God is love, right? Usually it's someone who believes in some vague God that they, they want to, to sort of inspire them, affirm them, and then leave them alone. So they take a small bit of 1 John 4, 8 out of context when you kind of tell them about, about that, that you go to church uh, and that you, you follow Jesus. They go, hmm, yeah, I, I like God too. God is love, isn't he? Love wins in the end, doesn't it? And the sad thing that Paul says here is that that person doesn't, doesn't really, really know anything about it. Paul says if you want to know the love of God, if you want to know what that actually means, that God is love, and if you want to experience the fullness of that love, then you have to be in Christ. Because it's in Christ alone that we experience the heart of God, the deep love of God for sinners like you and I. Now the second thing under this point is what the love of God compels him to do. What the love of God compels him to do, it, it, it makes us alive with Christ. The salvation formula is quite simple, isn't it? On your own, you're dead. In Christ, you're alive. God does what, what he did way back in Genesis 1 and 2. We, were, we heard it this morning, didn't we, at Grace Church. We heard that God formed a man out of the dust. And, and uh, when, when that man was formed out of the dust, we said it this morning, didn't we? He was, he was essentially dead, wasn't he? He had never been alive, but he was inanimate. And God breathed the breath of life into the man. And salvation is, is God doing that again. What he's done once before, he does again for us in Christ. Do you have those, do you have those tasks in your life that you, you have to keep coming back to and, and you just hate it? It gets on your nerves. You know, I love living in a flat. One of the reasons I moved to London was because I wanted to live in a flat where I had absolutely no grass to cut. I absolutely hate cutting grass. I, I have hay fever. And when I was in America, it was always hot and humid. I would get dirty and sweaty. And the grass would look good for like a day, maybe two. And then I would have to go do it again. I wouldn't. I would wait a week. But, but you know, it, it would look terrible for like, for like five out of seven days because I hated cutting the grass. And every time I did it, I would groan and go, ah, I've got to do this again. Maybe you have those things that make you go, but I, I just did this. Why do I have to do this again? I just did this. Well, the beauty of the gospel is that God never says of our salvation, but I just did this. I just breathed life into these people. Rather, God put into action a, a plan to bring his people to salvation, to bring life to them again through the Holy Spirit, and through the death and resurrection of His Son. It was a plan that took centuries, and it spanned covenants, the old covenant and the new. But it's had its foundation in the heart of God for His people from before the foundation of the world. People who were dead in their sin, but deeply loved by God. <coughs> you see, we bring, we bring nothing to the table, do we? Paul says we're, we're saved only by the free grace of God in Christ. In fact, Paul's quite excited about that grace, isn't he? Did you notice, did you notice in verse 5 where, 
where, where grace just sort of breaks in. He sort of has a statement, by, by grace you're saved. It's almost like you know, Paul, most of these letters that he wrote were, were actually spoken to a, to a scribe who was writing them down. And you can kind of see Paul kind of making his point, and he's building this whole point. You, you read this, this paragraph, and he's, he's building to something, isn't he? And the thing he's building to is, by grace you've been saved through faith. But he can't help it. In, in verse 5, before he actually gets that, he, he, ju- he drops it in there, doesn't he? You know, by grace you've been saved. And then he builds a bit more and he gets to verse 8. And he completes his thought. By grace you've been saved through faith. It's the free gift of God that saves you. Third, let's look for, for just a moment at the, the implication of being found in Christ. Paul says we're, we're secure in our salvation, don't we? We don't have to worry about, about dying again. But God has not only raised us from the dead, but he's, he's placed us with Christ in the heavenly places, seated us with him in order to, to lavish upon us his kindness and his grace. He's again underlying this, his motive and heart for us. You are dead. You contribute nothing. Jesus, out of, out of the love of God for us, does everything. That's a glorious fact. But, and it's, it's a smaller but this time, but did you notice where, where good works come in? The, the implications of our salvation is that it is final. It is secure. And it also calls us to live for Christ. That means we do good works. Look at verse 10 again. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. R.C. Sproul actually says of this verse, if, if a person is justified, he's not just justified on the basis of works. He's not justified on the basis of works. He's not justified by the works. He's not justified through the works. But he is justified to the works. I think it's a great summary. God saved you. He raised you from the dead. There's nothing you can do about it. There's nothing you can do to contribute to it. Now that you're alive again, go and live for Christ. What's he mean to live in, for Christ? Well, it means that there's, there's going to be things for you to do, good things. And when you start, when you start wondering to yourself, what are, the, what are the things I'm supposed to be doing? What, and, and, and you start getting anxious about, you know, what's your calling? Paul says, don't worry. Doesn't he? Don't worry. God's, God's already prepared those things in advance for you to do. He'll make it clear to you. In this good time, you don't you don't need to be anxious about these good works. That's the, the beautiful thing about them. They don't add to your salvation; they just simply flow from it. And God has has prepared them. Isn't that a relief? You know, we sometimes talk about how uh, you know we, we look at some non Christians who who uh, we would say put this church to shame with the the amount of charity work that some of them do, and we start thinking we need we need to do more. I could really stand to do more charity work. Paul actually says, don't, don't worry about that. Your charity work isn't an absolute good. In fact, it can be an idol for some people. It can be their righteousness. What, what you're called to do is, as a person who's found in Christ and the, is the good works that God's put before you. And yes, sometimes, sometimes that will be charity work. And that's, that's a great thing. We've seen Christians do tremendous work throughout, throughout the world. But sometimes it's going to be something as simple as staying at home and, and reading to your kids before bed. Sometimes that will be patiently loving your spouse through, 
through their struggles. Sometimes it's going to be having dinner with your flatmate after a tough breakup. Often we don't know how the, these, these little things that God puts in front of us every day is, is going to add up in his economy. But the whole point is that these, these works, big or small, don't, they don't count towards our salvation. That's all sorted in Christ. What's also sorted is, is what he calls you to do each day. These good works he puts in front of you. We're simply called to keep our eyes open to them. To live for Christ, to serve him. Now the, the third big point that we see this evening, and our last point is, is the people that Christ calls us to. The people that Christ calls us to. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but, but just notice what, what Paul wants them to remember in verse 11. This gets a little convoluted, but, but follow this. Verse 11. Uh, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Now Paul's calling the Gentiles, the, the, the non-Jewish believers, to, to actually recall how big the grace of Christ is. The grace of Christ was sufficient to, to bring them into the covenant people of God. That's actually quite a significant thing. What was once reserved only for the Jewish people is now expanded to include all of us. It's growing to fill the whole earth. And Paul incorporates here old uh, temple language in order to help us to understand the point. He talks about the, the dividing wall of hostility. If you were a, a Gentile and you visited Jerusalem and you were to, to go to the, the temple, you would be left in no doubt as to where you stood before God. People make a thing about the, the curtain that separated the, the holiest parts of the temple from, from the, the, the rest of it. And, and, and at the death of Christ, that... that that uh, that curtain was torn in two, which symbolized the, the the access to God, the Father through Jesus' death. But that's not what Paul's talking about here, though. See, what Paul's actually talking about here is that if, if you were a Gentile, you wouldn't get anywhere near that curtain. You wouldn't get anywhere near the sacred places. There was an outer court of the temple, and that was for the, the, the unclean people. That was for, for the Gentiles. That was for you and I. That was a place where you could go and, and, and you could go no further. You could basically look at, at a wall and be reminded of, of your separation from God. What Paul calls here the dividing wall of hostility. This is a, a very different society from our own. You know, this wasn't this wasn't a, a isn't religion fun and interesting? Let's go, let's go visit different holy sites with our friends and learn to value different cultures. This is serious stuff. There was real separation here. This was meant to be a physical reminder of how God viewed us and not some mere interesting trifle or fun fact. So why does Paul want them to remember this? I don't, I don't think it's simply to, to remind them of the gospel, but actually to remind them of, of who they belong with. You see, when, the, when he tells the church in Ephesus that, that the dividing wall of hostility has been broken down, what he's saying is not only do you have access to God, but you're, you're all t- jumbled together 
as the people of God. The church in Ephesus would have been a church mixed with both Jews and Gentiles, this community of, of true groups, one that, that looked down upon the other and one that thought, that, that, and one that, that was, was looking up to this, this group of people who had been set apart as God's people. And Paul says in Christ, you're, you're meant to be together. Christ saved you to make you one family. He says there's no, no, more, no dividing wall in the church. He reminds them of this because, because let's be honest, the church, the church gets messy. And the church hasn't changed for nearly 2,000 years. It's, it's still quite messy. And we re- need to remember the people that God has called us to. Paul says if we're in Christ, then we not only belong to him, we belong to his people, to his church. And that calling actually trumps how, how we might feel about those people sometimes. But Paul says it's not actually a matter of simply getting over how you feel. It's a matter of who Christ is making his people to be and how he's making them that. He says that he's, he's making us citizens of his kingdom. All of this together. He says we're all part of, of one kingdom, one household, the family of God, verse 19. But this doesn't happen by magic, does it? God's given us three ways that he is, is uniting us together. He, first, his word, the foundation of the new kingdom. It's the apostles and the prophets, the scriptures of the Old and New Testament. Second, he says it's, it's Christ himself, isn't it? He's the, the cornerstone. He has to be the anchor in which all of life in our church community rests. And third, he points us to the Holy Spirit at work in us. It's the Spirit of God doing the, the heavy lifting in our souls, applying the truths of God's word to us, and showing us the wonder and joy of being in Christ. And if all that's true, how can we, how can we let petty squabbles and historic identity markers, circumcision in this case, stand in the way of our fellowship? Paul says we belong to one family. That's the family of God. And the form that that family takes on, on this side of eternity is, is the church of Jesus Christ. And the church can sometimes appear weak, corrupt, boring, incompetent, Insert any other adjectives of frustration you'd like to in there. We all feel it sometimes, don't we? But the reality of the church far surpasses the perception of our senses. It far surpasses the the vocabulary of our frustration. Paul says the church of Christ is, is much more than meets the eye. It's actually God's people being joined together and growing into a holy temple. So when you look around here tonight, that may actually be hard for you to comprehend. No offense intended, but when I look around here tonight, I find it hard at times to comprehend. I'm your minister. I'm, I'm paid to love you. It's my job. But the point is that Christ, in Christ, we're, we're called to, to people. And we're called to, to the people here in this room. That we're, we're family, brothers and sisters, united together in Christ. We may not always be able to, to see it. We may not always understand how, how it works. But when the people of God are, are devoted to his word, when they're, they're looking to Jesus for their, their help and hope and salvation, when they're, they're trusting the work of the Holy Spirit in their hearts, then mysteriously and subtly and slowly we, we grow into more than what we appear to be on the surface. That's the beauty and the wonder 
of being made alive in Christ. That's the wonder of being moved from death to life in Jesus. Let us pray.